Hello and welcome to another episode of Midiera Meets, where we speak to all sorts of people who work in sound and music. On the show this time, we've got Helena Rice, who is a London-based electronic producer who's known for her incredible expansive sound and fantastic production, as well as the live visuals that go alongside her tracks. Uh, Helena's relatively new to the music-making world. Um, she studied music production only a few years ago and has since been making waves with her incredible productions and her 3D live shows. Um, you can donate to the podcast. You can support the podcast in a few ways. I mean, just liking it and sharing it and doing all the social media nonsense. Um, you can also donate via PayPal or Ko-fi if you want to support it. And you will get a shout out on an episode and you will be an inductee into the MIDI Arpeggiation Hall of Fame. But enough of that. Let's get on with it. Uh, the first thing that I asked Helena was about her musical beginnings. first experience I think I had of musical instruments was uh, piano so my, both my grandmothers were pianists uh, not professionally but they both played the piano and one of them was kind enough to buy our family a piano and no one else was particularly interested in it um, I, I was for, for whatever reason um, and I think my, my brother was more into the guitar um, initially and he sort of showed me how to work out chords on the piano, I think. So I had sort of two educations. One, one was I started taking piano lessons. So I studied classically through all the grades as I went through school. Um, but it feels like that, that was one sort of fairly limited education. And then the other side was my brother had, for instance, the Beatles guitar chord book. So he didn't have any piano notes in it. It just had the chords written out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to figure out how to reinterpret those onto the piano. And my brother kind of explained how things like dominant sevenths were and augmented chords, etc. So it was a really interesting education in that sense because all I wanted to do was to know how to recreate those songs. For me, I think always it's been about understanding the engine in what's what's going on inside of a piece of music. So what why is it that chord moving from one place to another why is that moving so if I hear something on the radio for instance I'll try and I would try and work it out by by ear having you know masters of my way around uh, around the chords and the chord structures etc but often it would just teach me like ah so they're moving from this chord to that chord but then the bass line is just descending one note by one note that's really that's really clever so I think that's what I would say so on one hand it's been useful for me later in life to have the grounding of a classical uh, piano education but on the other side where where my actual impetus to compose produce etc comes from is the other side which is which is almost forgetting some of the theoretical side and and doing it by ear and trying to understand how emotionally things are put together I'd say that that's sort of an encapsulation of 
the yeah. technical side of it. Yeah, I think um, the Beatles is. It's re- it's really nice to see how established songs that you know and love, uh, you know, uh, melodically, or and see how they're actually made when you when you play them yourself, isn't it? When you put your own hands on a piano and play a really incredible track and realize that oh, it's not actually like world-beatingly difficult. This is something that is possible. Yeah, exactly that. Sometimes you just think. It's literally just that. They just move <laughs> exactly, from, yeah, from there. But because they will flatten that chord, it, it all sounds super modern and diff- different. So, yeah, uh, it, it, it is magic, really. Yeah, and what sort of like sounds were, were you listening to or music were you listening to growing up? I remember hearing, without knowing what it was, Rhapsody in Blue on a television programme and just saying to my dad, what's that? And he knew the piece of music which was a piece of luck and then just saying please can I have the piano music for that I still can't play it <laughs> um, but it, again it's just the cushions harmonies chords and how quickly it can move between sort of different areas of, of different sort of melodic structures is, is, is just really I just found really really incredible at the time although I probably wouldn't have verbalised it like that I just thought it was a nice piece of music yeah yeah and then on the other side like, my, my brother and sister are quite a bit older than me and a, and a lot of it was I sort of didn't have the gumption to go and buy records myself. I'd, I'd sort of listened to what was hanging around the house. So, um, And they were into things. So it was like the first um, Peter Gabriel albums that he produced before So, so post-Genesis, pre... pre am I right in that? Yes, pre-So, um, which are full of weirder sound design and it's sort of quite prog titles like Moribund the Burgermeister. <laughs> um, and... So thing, things like uh, so things that, that I think are, are still actually quite progressive or, or they're quite cutting edge in, in in sound design. I think even today and a bit weird, a bit alternative, uh, I guess. And and also things like the Cocteau Twins. My uh, my sister had had their albums, um, and there was an album that was very popular at the time. I think quite seminal for a lot of producers later. It was called Les Mystères de Bois Bulgare, uh, which I think the Bulgarian TV state choir. Wow. Um, but I think it, it's it's weird because nowadays I hear lots of people quote the influence of that album. I had no idea how it got into our house or where where that came from. It was really non-Western the the tonality of it. Right. And they 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 sing some notes you don't expect, and some of them are quite they clash, but in a really beautiful way. Wow. Definitely. Yeah. It's interesting about what you're saying about the discordant like notes or elements in the that Bulgarian choral yeah. track. And um, you know, like studies have been done on sort of tribal people who who don't recognise the same discord in music that we do as right. Western listeners. Yeah. And isn't that yeah, I just think that's it's really really funny that we're sort of I guess, okay, yeah, I, I want to use the word programme but it sounds too cynical, but you know, we're sort of accustomed to uh, certain things sounding harmonic to our ears, and then in other cultures, it's you know they have very different like rules and and things happening in their music. Yeah, totally. And I think um, there's there's so many modern production methods as as well, which can help you challenge probably accepted. So rather than having to just play, you know, from a from a keyboard um, through whatever synth. Just the fact there's lots of ways of warping sound, and so uh, a tool I'm fond of using is is pull stretch. Yes. Uh, if you're aware of it, yeah. So extreme sound stretch, effectively, and it sort of seems like something that's a bit word of mouth. Like someone goes pull stretch to you, mm. <laughs> pull stretch, and then you pass it on to some other people. 
Um, and so and, I, and you're always you're always not sure that that's actually what it's called when <laughs> yeah, you're having tried pull stretching. Yeah, like, they're not saying that. Right? That's not what something's actually <laughs> so called. It's actually a stretching made by a song called Paul. Yeah. Um, you you put in a voice, and because you're moving, your voice is organic and it's moving between different notes. When you stretch it, you suddenly hear this sort of weird. Where are you missing the notes? And you're you're moving up. Because you can stretch it, you know, for for a year if you want to. You I know? think there, yeah, he does one that pulls extreme stretch, and you can make a sample last a billion years. Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, <laughs> Don't export that file for God's exactly, sake. Yeah, Do not exactly. press export. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah. So it's one of the more do it. I just think that there's. There's, there's so much stuff that you can use now that just pushes and distorts and changes and starts to challenge some of that. You know, and if the, if you then just sort of lose sight of uh, the kind of chromatic um, keys, then, you, you know, you, you start to create things which... And they're only created once. It's, it's all the classic thing. You start with a sample and you grow attached to that sample and nothing ever sounds like that sample. You Just the harmonics that occur at that moment in in that particular piece of audio Definitely. That, that sound that, that evoke something in you and you can you can't uh, you can't make it it just it just kind of kind of yeah, with I think yeah that's definitely um, uh, f- uh, the fire starter by the prodigy right the vocal for that track yes. was supposedly I, th- I say supposedly Liam Howlett has said it was recorded in a hotel uh, hotel room one right. night right as a guide track <laughs> with you know Keith Flint shouting all of the Firestarter lyrics. And, um, yeah, they went into a studio and they loved what he did and it really worked with the track and they went into a studio and tried and re-record the vocals with all the gubbins you've got. Yeah. And they kept the original vocal in the track because there was just something about that... That particular... quality of the recording. It's funny, isn't it? Because, <laughs> uh, like, producers like Phil Spector mm. were notoriously perfectionists and yeah. maddeningly... Mm. minute about the details and he created incredibly music that way uh, you know um uh but yeah it's it's funny to think the yeah there is just something within some recordings like well i'm sure we you've got recordings from years ago you've done with other people and there's just something about the character of that recording that you did with somebody that's that was in the room and it's yeah difficult yeah. to replicate i saw this producer speak and and she was talking about how she looks back at her early tracks and they're not very well finessed, she felt, in her opinion, but they had the energy of that time in them. It, generally, they, they, mm. they, I mean, it's obviously it's, it was encapsulating a, a particular time and, and feeling. So maybe it's okay sometimes for things to be... I mean, it sort of brings to mind what, what is it that you like about a track and sometimes what you like about the track is not the quality of the the track it's what it represents to you i do still have a view on um on organic social media i think this this comes from the other side of my life which is that for many years i worked as running as sort of marketing director and digital director for large retailers so um doing that for for a living you you trial and error across multiple routes multiple times and you're expected to know or to report very accurately on on data and to justify what works and doesn't work. And it's interesting coming into the music industry as a sort of a newbie and gradually getting a sense of 
you know, in a totally different guise as an as an artist and as the product person, not the person who is helping a product uh, yeah. come along, but mm. the actual product person. You suddenly get a view. It, 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 literally, I didn't understand anything about the music industry until about sort of five, five or six years ago. After I, I mean, I, I took a effectively took a course at Point Blank uh, Music School, which happened to unfold into me committing my life to, um, to to producing music. But coming in from another industry makes you realise that it's full of freelancers effectively small independent freelancers who are often quite young and who are being expected particularly in today's world which appears to be very accessible you can distribute you can do your own marketing through social media etc to run a small company very quickly with zero investment you know everyone expects that they don't have to invest money into Mm. it and it just felt to me that a lot of people were running around being sold a myth that if they did organic uh, social media uh, enough, uh, they would attain the same fame as Lewis Capaldi. As if Lewis Capaldi's only uh, only reason that he's famous is because he's funny on social media, and I think that's just not true. And I, I think that myth is just being propounded to lots of people because actually no one knows where to start, and it's it's really really difficult mm-hmm. for anyone to 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 get traction Be- because. Like when going back to your example of having the record, the point is when you had that record, if you'd managed to persuade people to spend money on you to get into a studio to do all the distribution routes that were relevant in, say, like the 80s and 90s, at that point there'd probably be people ready really to bet also some marketing money on you and to help propel you forward. Mm. Um, whereas now people are saying, you can just do this on your own and you don't need a label. What they're saying is, you can do this on your own. And you should be able to do it without anyone investing any money in you also. And I, I just, I think for the majority of people, it's it's just not, not true. And and also when you're told that people got there just on organic social media, yeah. a lot of it's PR nonsense. Arctic Monkeys is a, be- a good example, isn't it? You wonder whether my, you know, like MySpace, yeah. everyone just knew MySpace yeah. was how they did it and then sort of... You, you know everyone starts to see that formula yeah i think the problem is with, with these well-trodden social media lines of like how to promote your stuff mm. and everyone perpetuating this is how this person did it and this yeah. is how you do it when those lines get so well-trodden everyone just gets immune to like how it works and then there's another one that's like a, a different way of doing it but often you're part of a community and you're part of a movement and you're part of a whole network uh, of people and i think Again, coming into music, it's very clear that it's quite a small world it, and networks are very powerful ways for for people to move forward, possibly more so than social media, I, I would have said. And then, mm. and again, I think I just think this has just been true for forever for any form of entertainer that's become famous is there's a story about how they... There's a, there's a fun story that people like to tell uh, and it's always good to have that story and then say the word allegedly afterwards (laughs) yeah i need to start saying allegedly more often the music is really the primary yes thing isn't it the music is is the main thing um and i i do believe and maybe it's like an ideal uh like an idealism or something but i i do believe if you make really good music then people will come Maybe not in your lifetime. I don't know. You know, we all know of artists and people that who've who like posthumously lauded, but yeah, I do believe that 
I always say to people, I mean, I've, I've not really got much experience of releasing music, but I always just say, like, don't be distracted by, like, the promo and the marketing behind what you're mm-hmm. doing. Work on the music. Make, you know, make sure the music's as good as it can be. And then you're in a good, st- you know, you're in a good position to, to go forward. Yeah, the rest is window dressing, really. Uh, you'd hope. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so when did you start making electronic music? When did you start doing that? Really, only about seven years ago. So before that, I had a job, and I was in a couple of bands on on the side. So I'd almost always thought that I was going to do music, but slightly living in a dream of it never actually crossing over into being a reality. And then I feel that there were a couple of life changes that occurred, and... It not 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 like I said, right, I'm going to do music now. It, it didn't happen like that. But I think there was a bit more of an impetus to move to move forward things that I was interested in and, and that I wanted to pursue. I had previously um, invested in stuff like Cubase and had someone come around to my house to try and explain it. I, I don't I didn't know any other music people that were in production. So quite quickly, it would just become too difficult to understand because mm. I didn't even have didn't have any grounding in music production at all. And maybe I'm just the kind of person that, that maybe needs uh, a little bit of help uh, in, in that way. So uh, eventually it's like, I really want to record some stuff that I've written because I've always sort of dab- dabbled in, in that side. And just sort of by chance signed up with Point Blank. And I think they were the only school that I went to go and see. I don't know if you know them. I do, yeah. I went to a talk by Don Molly at Point Blank a couple okay. of years ago. Um, so, I mean, they, their moniker is like the number one electronic school uh, in the UK. And I didn't really know that. <laughs> I just knew that I was going to try and learn um, working with a door. Uh, so initially I did just three-month part-time course in the evening because I was working a day job. Um, and you just start with the grounding. And I just completely loved it. Um, and at the end of that time, that actually formed the first unit of the potential kind of total diploma Mm-hmm. So just just on a whim, really, I signed up for the whole diploma, and again continued to do it part time while while I was working. But again, it it became more and more like I was so happy <laughs> doing that, um, and all the people that I met and just fascinators, just absolutely fascinated. I think during that time, I sort of got to know some of the staff that worked at Point Blank, and one evening in the pub, uh, two of them said to me. We, we think that you could possibly do this professionally. Wow. Like, I don't know, you know, not that anyone really knows those things about anyone, but just two people to, to me seem to be in music saying that. I, I was kind of like, oh, that's encouraging. That's really encouraging. And, mm-hmm. and Point Blank actually put out my first EP. So uh, you kind of applied beyond their record label and it's, it's just a good initial... Uh, experience of producing something to the best standard that you can, mastering and, and putting it out and a little bit of PR around it. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't a, a big deal at the time, but it was a big deal for me and it was a big first step. And I think it's easy to forget when you're coming into it new how 
uh, hazy everything looks. You, you, you just yeah. don't know what's on the other side. Yeah. And it's not like a profession where people write up really... I mean, there are loads of great guides on, online for, for, for things now. But actually the process is, can be quite individual to individual artists. And you kind of piece it together. You know, you piece together whether you're releasing or you're releasing with a label and who the distribution is and how you do the marketing. And yeah, it's it's not a sort of straightforward path. So what what do you think impressed them about the way that you were making music? Well, essentially, I remember uh, I was in, uh, which class would it be? I think it was the mixing class and we had to produce a track. Uh, and I remember being a bit terrified that everyone would laugh at me <laughs> and and going round this track for maybe maybe we made it in a day or two days and you know I'm not really from an electronic music background I had started getting massively into electronic producers like people like John Hopkins and Lawn and rival consoles mm. and then sort of the more sort of outre guys like uh, Wonder Tricks Point Never and all all that kind of stuff so I sort of I guess I had uh, some of those motifs in there, but I, I made a track and the tutor used it to um, do one of his sort of point blank deconstructions or mixing tutorials online. And it was the first time I'd experienced something where I'd sort of created a thing that people warmed to. And so I presented that to, to the lady that ran the label and she's like, yeah, great. So they they published that EP in 2015. And then, yeah, so I went on to finish the course. My tutors were pretty warm to me because... Like with them, I'd also volunteer to do interning or, or whatever else I could do or hang out with them in their studios or, you know, um, or, or even do extra lessons with them sometimes just to, to learn about production and just to sort of sponge and absorb anything that was in their brains. And, and they, you know, they all had their own musical histories and past and all the people they worked with. They had, you know, people who won Grammys teaching there. So all of that stuff I found super fascinating. And the school were, were I, I just thought that they were a great college and they were they were really um, supportive uh, to me. Clearly very um, yeah, clearly very talented student. It's really probably a pleasure to teach. You also had done teaching as well yourself. Had you done teaching before? I you... that was more kind of when I was young. I just did I did TEFL when I was very young. I did um, I taught uh, English in Poland. Oh. Wow. Uh, my mother's Polish, so uh, I did half a year. Uh, actually a school for the blind and actually again music was quite important because it's often something you know using voices and kind of singing together and singing harmonies was something that the class I taught did did a lot of so that's cool yeah I think I think it's really uh yeah a really nice thing that point blank you know obviously the education educational side of it but also yeah, the other fact they have a label is a really nice sort of stepping stone for people mm. with a bit of a it's just yeah, it's just like a really fluid, very logical thing for them to do, you know, to be able to like elevate their students, do you know, and, and have a have a sort of a pre a precursor to a yeah, yeah. A career or a starting a starting point. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a, it's a brilliant sort of first, uh, first experience of that, and even even the experience that you get of um. Like the night before it actually came out, I just sat up sweating in bed thinking, this, this is a terrible thing, yeah, it's the worst <laughs> thing I've ever done. Yeah. Uh, which, which apparently lots of people get that. Uh, I'm pleased to see a, a guy called Satek, uh, who 
teacher that put oh, bike, actually. Oh, great. Saytag. Amazing. So, yeah, jo- Joseph Keevil. He jams with hardware, doesn't he? he yes. He has a lot of hardware. Yes, exactly. I think he's from Shropshire. I think he's from the oh, same county as me okay, for yeah. some reason. Mm. But uh, he, he posted the same thing the other day. It's like, this is how it goes, you know, existential angst. And then, you know, it's all right afterwards. Definitely. So I was encouraged by that. Great. I, I get the same with podcasts now. When I put oh, my right. podcast out, I'm like, I sounded like <laughs> such a dick in that podcast. <laughs> oh, my God, everyone's going to think I'm an idiot. And then I put it out and I fucking forget that that ever happened. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we always have this um, voice somewhere critiquing us in yeah. some way. It's our inner critic, isn't it? Yeah, so see. And I, th- I think also that's maybe part of the reason or something that I benefit from from having come back into music uh, a later uh, date in life is that now I think I feel awful about this but I'm going to do it anyway (laughs) (laughs) because otherwise I won't do it ever yeah who knows what happens so yeah yeah I think don't let your try not to lead your life making judgments based on fear you know don't let your inner critic hold you back yeah um there is a really fun exercise you can do, which is write write down and describe your critic, your inner critic. Mm. Describe that person, who they are exactly. Mm. And when you put it down on paper, you realise that this person is impossibly brilliant. Right. That, and you've just created this magical, perfect person that's criticising you in your own yeah. head. Or, or at least I did. Uh, yeah, I really found writing about my inner critic a, a really useful process. It's... That's really interesting. I should I should definitely try it. And the interesting thing also is when you actually get actual critics that start to <laughs> yes, write things on yeah, like, yeah, is yeah. what your actual reaction is. There's <laughs> always gonna be people you know, critiquing stuff. There's always gonna be that. Um to- totally. And you look at any YouTube video about some of the most touching subjects and it's got, you know, ninety five percent thumbs up and then it'll be five percent thumbs down. So like, so you gradually sort of go sometimes people just just want to be heard. And I think Gary Newman actually is the person that said it about it. He did an amazing podcast series uh, called, I think it's something like Trailblazers. It's about electronic music and it's um, mm-hmm. it's Nick Hawkes and Eddie Temple Morris um, interviewing amazing people from electronic music. And Gary oh, Newman is one of them. And, and he just said, you can't listen to either side. You can't listen to the positive stuff. You can't listen to the negative stuff either. You just have to do what you do. Mm. And then it's really nice if people like your stuff and I know he's someone who spends a lot of time with fans you know he'll sort of chat to fans a lot after um, every concert so he cares about them he doesn't he doesn't just say oh I'm just doing this for me and no one else yeah exactly but he doesn't take he doesn't take it in I think that's what he's saying you can't take it in you just have to do what's right right for you Definitely, definitely, and yeah, he's. Um, I think he's also. Um, he does. They do rehearsals. You as uh, you can pay to go and visit the rehearsals of of Gary Newman tour and stuff. That. Wow! So like he's letting everybody in on the whole yeah. process, which is a wonderful thing because obviously you're not stood in the room going, "Why don't you play a B sharp instead of it?" You know, <laughs> no, you're not allowed. You're just watching the the rehearsal, which. Yeah, I, I've always thought of that um, as a really good, great way of like innovating in the modern world of like bringing people in, obviously also supporting yourself as an artist mm. and a group. Um, yeah, I just thought that was a really fun thing because your fans would love to see you rehearsing and just prattling about for a bit, wouldn't they, you know? Maybe. <laughs> I'm trying <laughs> to think it's Gary Newman, then. If it's Gary Newman, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
I don't know if it's relevant, but I recently put forward an old track of mine for like a roasting, you know, people like roast Oh, right, stuff. okay, yeah. So um, <laughs> I interviewed Annie Klang, who's a techno uh, DJ, and she does a, an online thing where you can submit an early track for roasting. Mm-hmm. And there's like 10 people's tracks, and it's supposed to be a really early track that's like shit that you made, yeah. and everyone just takes the piss out of it. Yeah. And I found it so difficult. I was like, I, I nearly like disconnected my internet. I was like, I, I just couldn't handle it. It yeah. was horrible. But then the day after, I felt great. Oh, but is it is the idea that people have to come up with good comedy insults for it? No, they just rip your track <laughs> to pieces. <laughs> Nobody says anything nice. And everyone's just like, oh, that's fucking terrible. And like, yeah, um, it was one of those things that was like, oh, and he said, oh, you know, why didn't you submit a track for this roast? And I was like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but when I actually came to it, I was like unbelievably. I just turned into like artist mode, and I was like, I, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do it. It's horrible. I, I really hate it. However, the next day, I really felt like a a, cl- a cleansing process. Right, okay. It was something yeah. that actually I felt that did make me stronger because I knew that track was shit. Ooh. Anyway, I submitted it because I knew it was shit. Yeah. I just wasn't expecting people to say it was shit. It was but, really but the weird. Is, what say, was I expecting to happen? But you say I knew it was shit. I mean, you know, it's. I'm not the first person to say music's highly subjective, but music's also hugely contextual. So if people, and everyone knows this, if people that you admire tell you that something is good and you're not sure about it, you're more likely to give it an open mind or go, mm. oh, maybe there's something that people. Just, just, you know, just hugely experience this with, yeah, the, the way you present yourself. Or the way it is presented to other people is will define what they think they're allowed to get away with saying about it. Mm. it so a lot of the best artists, I think, it's not just having confidence or faking confidence. It's that they're saying this. This is it. It. What you think doesn't matter to some degree. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think you're right about the context as well, because it is like, submit your track to get roasted. It's not like, yes, it's let's listen like, and, and give a balanced opinion. Yeah. It's like, you're good. Yeah, so, um, but I, I mean, this this podcast and interview is not about me and my experience uh, at all. But it was really, I found it really strangely traumatic, even though I didn't expect, I didn't. what was I expecting yeah. to happen? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> what Absolutely. was I expecting to happen? <laughs> Yeah, like very miffed for about half an hour, uh, but it was okay. <laughs> anyway, so if we go on to your yeah, what, so you said you self released some stuff. So, very initially, like if I could, the narrative coming out of uh, Point Blank was actually I'd listened to when they talked about sync music and commercial opportunities because I thought maybe I need to. If I want to be involved in music on a day-to-day basis, I come from a commercial background and in marketing, so I kind of understand the idea of doing things to brief. Mm. So actually, the first thing I did leaving Point Blank was go was Google and then go around or email or phone as many sync agencies as I possibly could, um, and had sort of track signed to some smaller ones. But then, in uh, it, in a stroke of like one one place Steve Spiro who is the co-founder of one of the largest independent sync agencies in London called Felt Music listened to the EP and and asked me to come into the studio and said it's great um would you like to make an album of tracks that sound a bit like you know this one mm. and for me it's like that's 
this is amazing. It's literally, for someone who's never done music before, to be sort of asked to do something for an actual company that involves you being the artist when I'm used to being the person that's sort of auxiliary to another product or, or artist or whatever mm. was uh, really pr- profound. So I went home and I wrote those tracks and we formulated the whole album. It was all non-vocal, just instrumental electronic tracks. Did them all to sort of final production standard. I even run out all of the stems. And then what happened is they called me back into the office again and there was Steve and a guy called Matt Kalida who used to work for Sinking Ninja Tune. Oh, wow. And they said, uh, we're setting up a label called Blurred Recordings. Would you like to, to change the contract that you've signed to um, uh, a recording contract, effectively? What, what they were trying to do is they, they have a, a label of independent artists who are doing their own work, who they then market to their commercial clients... Um, but it's not like um, jobbing sync, as it were, where, you, where you're writing, I don't know, pops and whistles kind of thing for, for, for adverts. Mm. So, yeah, so we, we signed a different contract, which was a proper commercial contract, which, again, was an interesting experience to do first time. And then uh, I started deciding that I must do live. I must do live before I die. And I started doing the tracks, but I'd sing over them, so I reconstructed them slightly, and I was singing over them and firing off uh, the tracks on, on Ableton uh, push while push. I was going. Yeah, yeah oh, exactly. Um, and Steve came down to one of the gigs and said, hold everything, can you re-record the tracks with vocals on? So another six months ensued of uh, me doing that. And then at the, the very final point, a mix engineer just helped get the final kind of balances right because I think I was still a little bit raw in production was that you um, handing the, over the mixes to someone Yeah, else? so I'd, ha- I'd hand over the final creatively mixed stems, which I'd got to the best standard that I, I could get to, and then they just did a little bit of the, almost like the sonic finessing to make sure that the drums got space and the basses is... Uh, you know, the, all the frequencies are kind of properly mapped together, I suppose. And also ran my... He had access to some plugins which I didn't have, like running the, um, the sausage, vocals through. Sausage fattener. Uh, we had uh, things like the UA, um, the Manly Vox box, for instance, mm. which I now got UAD plugins. I have, I have that myself. So it just helped to sort of polish it a little bit, and then you know went through mastering, and and we released Redux finally, I think, in October or November of two thousand and seventeen. And you know we had a bit of PR, and that was all very exciting. And then sort of, then sort of nothing <laughs> uh, occurred, and for for a couple of years. I was probably going out and, and onto small electronic networks and, and gigging around London. Mm. So uh, often there are places like there's a, a network called Plug to a sort of vaguely around the Walthamstow area and Crux who do AV events. For personal reason, I had to put a lot of stuff on, on hold for a, for a couple of years. It was just too much to do. I had a four-day-a-week job. I just couldn't clear space. It, it's really tough and mm. I really admire people who seem to make it in music without necessarily having the, the space to do so. So cutting to lockdown, and then suddenly I've got all this space and time to do music, and I really felt, you know, it had been a few years, and we thought that maybe there'd be a sync with, with Redux, that they'd get onto a commercial, and then that would open up the album, and that was the, their way of looking to market that album. But for whatever reason, that hadn't occurred. 
Did they put the sync forward with the vocal tracks and the instrumentals? They had How both. does that work? Yeah, yeah they had. So, so basically we did final mixes with, with vocals and with instrumentals. So come lockdown, it's almost, it was a learning for me, particularly having worked in corporate structures before, you're then, you are your, your own person and you're representing yourself. Mm. Often it can be quite a nerve-wracking thing to represent yourself as an artist because you feel, that you know, a lot of people have a natural shyness or diffidence and you don't want to go, me, me, me. Yeah. And you, what you're desperate for, and I see a lot of people desperate for, is someone just to pick them up and make it or better. It's like, so I see a lot of people going, oh, I'm going to get a manager or I'm going to get a record label or I'm going to get one of these things, and that's going to sort out all the problems. And often it's because they think those people are managing things that they can see with perfect regard and that they will be able to sort out their careers for them. And interestingly, I think even... Even when it was more the paradigm, maybe 30, 40 years ago, for an artist to have managers and, and labels, etc., I think the artists that I've read about and who were very successful were more interested in taking, took more control of their, of their lives and their careers or didn't try and abdicate responsibility to those parties. Yeah, and yeah, sometimes yeah. I feel... It, the. The music world is so overwhelming and there's no clear path through it. It's not like uh, you, know, you take up, I don't know, maybe accountancy and you kind of know there's a series of exams and then you try and get a, at this level and then you work your way up levels. Because you, you it's, win a Grammy for accountancy. Yeah, no, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and not to say that any career is more or less complicated, but, but the, the paths are so different and they're forged and, it, and they morph and change as every year changes and the industry changes uh, around it or the way of delivering music changes around it so mm. so I think it's overwhelming for a lot of artists to to try and do it so they just you, you get into that thing where you just think well someone else needs to help me because <laughs> I don't know how to go forward and I think it was just sort of um, just the, that that sort of like no one's going to do this and actually by that time I had learnt a bit about what release means what marketing is what the various bodies in music do how royalties work i i knew enough to stop piecing it together and i belong to the rattle who've been superb um uh, assistance to their their own organization that helped support artists to become their own the ceo of their own organization uh, and they offer a lot of help and support and advice so with that in place it was kind of like oh, i'm i'm just going to do this myself then and it's been the best thing I've ever done, I think. So I just got going as quickly as I could and um, released the track Spheres in September. And also because I come from a digital marketing background, rather than the organic social, which I could see was limited, I went straight for social media advertising. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm lucky because I, and I also have some colleagues and friends who, who helped me out with it, kind of understand how to, to put stuff together and, and to um, optimise and push out um, ads on, on that basis, which started building my fans immediately. So I'd gone, I went from having under 100 monthly unit users on Spotify and peaked recently at about 23,000. So the advertising has to go in, in line with a release plan. PR is almost a slightly separate thing. It's like I do PR and I do that through the agent who actually marketed my initial album with uh, Blurred Recordings, Redux. But I've never seen PR directly drive streaming, for for instance. 
it has a small effect. It's almost as if you, you have two careers. You've got one which is, in this day and age, it's kind of numbers and reach-based. So how can I get people to sample, effectively, the, the product? Mm. <laughs> um, and then the other side, you've kind of got a networking and industry almost reach out, um, and more sort of influencers reach out, which is th- through my own networks and, and, and contacts and, and through PR. Because you had, um, yeah, your releases have been reviewed by all sorts of magazines. The Clash, was it Clash? Clash, uh, Clash mag- uh, reviewed my initial album, uh, Redux, mm. uh, very positively, which was great, yeah. And Electronic Music Magazine. Yeah, and about. that was just random. That just happened before Christmas. But again, this is the thing, once you start to bang the drum and make some noise... Funny things happen, like people call you up for a podcast. And you just mm. <laughs> you know, like, Strange people call you up. <laughs> exactly. But things happen that you expected to happen and that you're making happen. And that are often, you know, they're, they're at your expense in time and, and money as well. You know, and to be honest, there's, there's some budget that I invest into it. Mm. But then it starts to generate all this interesting other stuff that just comes left of centre out of the room. And, and that was the case with Electronic Music Magazine, I think. Um, the, the writer there, had just someone had asked him to, to, to stick me in that in the magazine, which was amazing. And it, it, it gave me a, a massive boost at the time because, you know, like most artists, you sort of live on your own, work on your own, <laughs> get no feedback day to day. So yeah. it's really nice to, for things like that to happen. Definitely, definitely. And yeah, I think, yeah, you are clearly a very, very talented producer. Um, there's a very, there's a really, there's like a very deep sort of melodic side to what you do as well as being, it's sort of very clean and nice to listen to your production style. Well, that's kind of easy to say. Again, the production side was another thing where I just had this realisation that no one could help me. <laughs> as in, I had sent stems out before to a mix engineer, but I... I wanted control over the total result and it was kind of like I have to keep pushing myself to get better results. I'm still way off the producer that I'd like to be. There's a point where, again, someone just wishes that some amazing producer will pick you up and sort out all your tracks. It's like, yeah. here, can I just feel you? You move aside and I'll just tell yeah, you Yeah, and to, to be fair, I think what was interesting is listening to your podcast with DJ Rap. She quite rightly said, delegate to the right people. And I think DJ Rap was saying, you know what, I'm not going to be the best master my own tracks. and I'm maybe going to let other people mix my tracks as well because they're good at doing that. So I'm just going to do the ideas and put those together as best I can and then, and then move them on. I think I'd, I sort of agree with that approach hugely. You, you haven't got all the time in the world and you may not have all, all the ability in the world to do all of the different things that you need sometimes. However, I, I did feel that sending them out to a mix engineer just complicated the, the, the process and then you can get into discussions about what you like or don't like and and then it's sort of their style and not quite your sound as well. So... Sort of a compromise between what they want with it and what you want with it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's maybe just not, yeah, not not your your vision of the track, and and it's not in a way what I'm doing right now because it's non-vocal is, I am the producer, so sort of I should try and get it to the final, the final mark before it goes off for mastering. So that's what I've done with the, with spheres and with um, 
uh, with terrain and with brakes, which is just about to come out. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you, you with each of these three, you want to create a unique world. Yeah, so concurrently with the audio part, I've always been interested in audio and visual as a sort of total performance. I love going to places where it just kind of transports you into another world. So almost coming from the opposite angle, you've got um, outfits like United Visual Artists. It's often more from the art side, but they'll do these really super cool exhibitions with kind of just, sometimes it's just swinging lights that are swinging in a particular pattern. But for instance, they did one recently that was that, and it was, the soundtrack was by um, Mira Calix. And you just felt like you were somewhere else. So it's almost like a, I hesitate to use the word immersive because everyone connects to that word right now. Mm. But it's it's more of the experience that you get going to a really immersive art exhibition. So when I did my first EP, I emailed around all the art colleges in London and really amazingly, three of the students from Royal College of Art uh, responded and made videos for each of the tracks that I was releasing. Brilliant. Oh, that's good. Incredible, yeah. And then one of them I'm still working with. So um, he's a guy called Jan Petirik. He's uh, based in Prague. He contacted me to, to sort of say, that, you know, should we work together again maybe in 2019? We've done little bits of work on and off. And we started coming up with this concept of, of how we could do immersive shows together. And we were all about alive at that point. <laughs> Little did we know. <laughs> then when it came to lockdown, I think the other formative experience there was I, I won a competition with Ableton in sampling. Did you? To, yeah, to oh. go to um, Loop. Um, I think that was in 2018, maybe, or maybe 2017. And... There I saw a performance by No Sage Thing, um, along with a visual artist called Kajiro Takahashi. And what he does, and it's just phenomenal, because they were there on stage, and yet there's this sort of weird virtual environment being projected behind them. But somehow they were in the environment in real time, and wow. sort of, not pixelated, but sort of, well, what I came to understand was a point cloud anyway. Um, Is that like a mesh? Yes, yes. So, so, uh, no, uh, so the actual tech, as it turned out, so I started sort of looking at the videos of their performances, scrutinising them a little bit more closely. <laughs> Clearly what they had was, was like three uh, Kinects. Which, which is an which, Xbox, ki- um, yeah. two cameras, depth perception. Exactly, so you can kind thing. of basically, you basically pick up a sort of, point cloud of uh of someone's shape and then you can project it into and he uses unity 3d which is a gaming tech mm-hmm. uh, which is free to use yes yes unless it, you're earning 100 grand a year with it right it? <laughs> <laughs> um so yan was kind of into uh unity um at the end of 2019 we had the opportunity to play at abbey road um in studio two which was a bit epic Mm. Um, we were just playing there at a hackathon event, which happened to involve Unity. Uh, it was part That's of Abbey amazing. Road Red, so it's kind of their like kind of tech um, wing. Yeah, arm. yeah. As it, as it were. <laughs> That's great. Um, and it sort of forced us to kind of get our acting gear in. And Yan produced at that point some visuals just in in Blender. But then we'd already started thinking about worlds and environments then. So then when I started self-releasing and wanted to get a video for Spheres, we we took one of those videos that we'd already trialled and created the sort of full 3D world. 
And then I needed to find um, some people to, to help me map connect so that I was static. Uh, so I stay static within the 3D universe while the camera can sort of sweep around, which is a little bit different from some of the VR expressions that, that you see. Yeah, um, AR, AR stuff where you're... There's a lot of people using green screens with VR, for example. Yeah, and this just seemed to be something that was a bit more... It sort of gave quite a beautiful and emotive feel to it. Mm. So I remember I just put a brief out on a freelance website and and really it was picked up by an agency in Armenia called Xtech. Lovely guys who helped me effectively create the file uh, to, to do that. And then Jan could sort of put whatever creative around that. And, and Spheres was this kind of almost like, like a snow globe, big snow globe with sort of weird mountains <laughs> in and then a little platform and then I can be projected onto the platform but you can also treat any figure that's there so we, we change throughout to just sometimes it's just sort of weird electrical lines that represent me performing right so it just just to sort of visually build a picture for people yes yeah. yeah it's like um sort of a land a, a sort of landscape that you yeah. have with you being recorded live in a room making your music mm. but using the connect generating you into this 3d world yeah in which you are doing the movements you're doing in real life yeah but yeah it's um like a, a figure of you doing it yeah. yeah it gives you quite a quite a large amount of um creativity uh like options in terms of where the camera goes and what happens as the music changes i suppose yeah totally and i think it's gone down really well because i want to get into the live streaming thing as well so i've sort of called it virtual streaming I think because a lot of people are doing the kind of streaming from home, and which is lovely and intimate, but this was something different. Mm. So I had some really strong, very positive reactions to watching some of those live streams of people going, wow, it's the future of performance. <laughs> so uh, the exciting thing that we're going to move this on with in the next couple of weeks is we've just worked out how to do audience interaction. So you can actually type in a command into either Twitch chat box or the YouTube chat box. And hopefully we'll make it for Facebook chat box. And it will make something happen around me. (laughs) So whether it's kind of a little explosion or it might just be publishing someone's name or comment or likes or whatever. That was our aim in the first place was to try and create something that brought you as the audience into what we were doing so that you're like within and part of this experience and that's brilliant ideally really we want i want to to get this to be a live experience in the long term so i'm already starting to look at test spaces and very kindly the rattles giving me some assistance in looking for test spaces i can just i just need to be in a space with a high-end projector (laughs) uh, and um, a pa system for a bit just just to sort of see what we can what we can create and how we can make this kind of world kind of come alive i guess yeah i, th- I think it's really uh really interesting thing to have the audience participation coming in there and yeah the the cogs are already spinning around my mind what you could do with that I th- yeah but that, that's a really interesting idea also in terms of i mean just in using unity like the the things that you could do there the functions like you could duplicate yourself or like have reflections or uh, totally. things like that. Um, so one of the videos has actually got me upright <laughs> and me upside down yeah, uh, on either side of an island and then we're just flipping the island in space. So yeah, and, and the breaks which is coming up, <laughs> you're navigating around the city and I'm around every corner <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs>
was um, there, those science experiments they did with multiple people playing Pong in a cinema where you had to hold up like a red or a blue card to make the, the thing go up. So it was like a collective hive mind, kind of collective yeah. hive mind. You could do something similar like that. So people would be maybe controlling, I don't know, uh, the camera angle is obviously the, the first thing that you could do, but you could have... You could have an option, like a directional thing that they could sort of choose or a path, a we, place yeah. that you could go to. Maybe have a different arenas that you could end up in at the end of the track and the audience are in some way making that decision. Yeah. That would no, be interesting. I, or they make it rain or... Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Like it's, it's funny you said it because I was discussing hive mind precisely <laughs> that with, with um, a developer who's helping with the project um, just yesterday. So, mm. yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's a really cool idea. But I love what you're doing because I haven't, I haven't seen anyone doing, like, using the Connect and putting yourself in the environment. I don't think there's anyone fusing those two things together. Except that I obviously took it from... Uh, no such thing in Kadira Takashi ever. Yeah. So I think I think there are a f- there are a few there are a few that I found, but yeah, it's not partly because Connect is is or that Connect that Connect Two is uh, now what's that called? It's uh, obsolete. Obsolete. Well, I guess it's yeah. In some way, obsolete. It's obsolete to the Xbox, but to actually, yes. but to like developers, it's still it's still it's usable. still open. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Interesting development actually. And I was just using my brother's got an iPhone twelve. Is lidar. Um, technology so he was doing a little scan uh, around the room and it, it, it again it does it uh, my understanding is it, that it's it's the same thing effectively it's just building a point cloud so my question though would be they're building it into iPhone 12 I think the, the, the most recent iPad but will they build it into sort of future Androids and will it become general because if everyone has that mm. then then that presents some interesting opportunities for people to trial their own Develop. filter or yeah or because or involved in a similar way mm. um, or, or that's what we migrate to yeah. certainly 3D scanning is I mean people have shown me on mobile phones 3D objects that they've scanned with mm. just their phone and it's modelled in it, you can just load it up in Blender or in Unity um, yeah I think that is always that, that's the weird thing with uh, virtual reality in this sort of field is that um, you know I, a lot of people say like we don't know where we are in the trajectory of it like yeah. are we is it the beginning virtual reality and always virtual reality has always been round the corner hasn't it like it's always mm-hmm. been, since the 90s the early 90s it was round the corner yeah. virtual reality with <laughs> giant headsets so um yeah who's to know who's to know really whether it, it's it is going to be i'm sure it's going in the in the direction of you know, with 5G networks being able to process more data and send more data, yeah, may, yeah, I'm sure Android will get there eventually, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't worry too much about... <laughs> You're like ahead of the curve anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> I don't know about that, but but um, I think at the end of the day, though, you just came back um, to the connections made through live. I totally agree, and I was actually on a podcast the other, the other day debating... Uh, you know what is the future of of live streaming, or or does does everyone sort of leave it behind once they're sort of real live, or does it become a hybrid? I think my feeling is that live streaming is a preacher unto itself. People sort of want it to mimic live or to replace live. I just think they're two different things, two experiences which could also be brought together into a single experience. So I think probably more gigs in the future will also have a live streaming element uh, attached to them. Mm. I still believe in live life. So even though I'm doing this stuff that's virtual, that's actually not where I want to 
live. I very much want to take shows into live spaces that have an element of the projection and maybe the mapping as well. Yeah. But DJ Shadow is a really good example. Have you seen any of his shows? No, I haven't. He uses the um that the the screen, the sort of mesh screen. Ah, okay. It's projected. Is this like the Nine Inch Nails have used the mesh? Yeah, there's a particular. There's like one guy. I think his name's Stuart, who's in Britain somewhere, and he he's got this mesh screen, right. and he takes it all <laughs> over the world. But yeah, it's like you end up getting a three D projection because they can they'll project behind, yeah. but they can also project on the screen. So it's like he was. There was one point when it was like sort of global surveillance and like the world spinning around and DJ Shadow's like in the middle of it and it's a really um uh it's a yeah it it definitely elevates the music um and um uh yeah I also just like to mention DJ Shadow is so amazing at the end of that gig he was just like hanging out with everyone it's such an amazing guy yeah um but yeah really um I think yeah you're right I think that there there may well be a fusion of the two for example maybe like gigs maybe let's say um I don't know like the roundhouse maybe they'd I don't know placed in London I'm just picking a random place that I know the name of um maybe yeah maybe they'll sell ticketed events like in real life and the online version which will yeah. be maybe some well, I th- version of it yeah and I think uh, yeah I mean I think that might be the truth that some of those ticketing agencies have built up started building up a revenue stream associated with with live streaming and then if live comes back as well then it's it's just all um, all additional for them I suppose mm. if so, live comes back <laughs> it better be I've got tickets I've got tickets for things I've got tickets for things what have you got tickets for I've got tickets for um, a producer called Lorraine James uh, so she is playing I forget the name of the space but it's in October um, and yeah I'm really looking forward to, to seeing that amazing yeah. what about you uh, Blue Dot Festival oh I've always wanted to go to Blue Dot Gosh. yeah I went to the first one it was brilliant oh, wow. Jean-Michel Jarre playing <gasps> My hero, uh, that was great, yeah. And uh, Uncle, no, yeah, Uncle played and Underworld, that was good. But then this year's wow. like Bjork, Metronomy, Puva oh. Marder. Right. But yeah, it's in July, who knows if that's actually going to uh, yeah. happen or not. But yeah, to just want to mention that uh, Kajiro Takahashi is like, he's a programmer, I, I guess he's multidisciplinary, but he's also a programmer that makes uh, things for Unity, uh, this 3D modelling software we're using, uh, and he's done lots of MIDI and audio-related plugins, mm. which make your life so much easier uh, for you in Unity. Like, if he hadn't made those things, you just couldn't do some of the MIDI and audio stuff. So, yeah, uh, shout-out to him, really. He's just, like, yeah. an amazing guy. I know so yeah. many people that... Uh, he's just treat him as a god. Even uh, exporting Unity to video, he's got... He's the only person who's made a plugin that does that, and... Right. Um, that was really useful for a project I worked on. If I couldn't have you, if I, if he hadn't made that, I, I wouldn't have nailed to make my project. I sort of made the project up to the point, thinking, oh, I can d- obviously export this as a video, and then was like, shit, you can't do it. <laughs> oh no, and found him. Um, but yeah, we haven't talked about like what you use to make music, really. Right. I know we've mentioned Ableton and yeah. um, Logic, but yeah, what do what do you use to make music? Um. It's a variety of things. Um, so on, say on the synth side, you know, a lot of them are sort of VSTs. Uh, so like Diva, for instance, is a favourite for, for basses. Mm-hmm. Um, very kindly, someone bought me 
um, uh, a little, it's a, I think it's a Roland Boutique, so it's an SEO2, uh, which is an analogue synth, but it has digitised settings so that if you discover a sound, you can actually easily recall it. You can it. save it, wow, yeah. that's good. Uh, and that I've used fairly extensively on um, particularly the last track, Terrain. Also, I mean, I've talked a lot about sampling and uh, samples that might just be of me or they might be from a sample library, but then heavily treated. So I've talked about Paul Stretch, for instance, is a mm. favourite for sticking vocals through and, and seeing what happens. Any plug-in that I can find or get my hands on, I'll probably stick it against a track and, and see what it does mm. um you did mention you mentioned reactor in one or first seeing <laughs> did, reactor yeah. point blank yeah so i think seeing the possibilities of it and in fact i think a lot of the stuff for crin was was from reactor reactor i just thought was crazy because it had those weird you know where you can hook up the synth to the sequencer mm. and I think it's got a sequencer called something like Spiral or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I know that yeah? one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and it's, it's mad, isn't it? It's just, it's just totally off the, off the planet. So you sort of do that, and then but then maybe put it through a reverb unit and just take the wet signal, for instance. And I think something like that happened. I think it was a, a piano sample, actually, that just took the reverb wet signal for Crin, and it created this really weird ghostly sound, which... As soon as it sort of went with the music again, sort of happy accident um, style process, which I think a lot of people would use, which is hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I uh, was um, I <laughs> I recently got very hung up on a particular sound that was on a, a record that I really loved by a producer called Seppa on a track called Elk, and there's this one sound thing that I I was so obsessed with that I dreamed about it for an entire night. Wow. And, what was it about? The, what, 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 just can you describe this? It sounded to me like a voice on seventies radio with some frequencies cut out and being thrown from a moving car. <laughs> and I then just went round various friends and said, "What do you think this is? How does it work?" Um, and then someone sort of said, "Oh, it's definitely a digital it's a digital synthesizer. It's a D fifty choir patch that's then be detuned." So I tried. <laughs> I tried something approaching that and I thought, no, I don't think that's right. So I wrote to Seppo himself and then he very kindly uh, gave me a sound design tutorial no. and um, talked me through wow. how he built that sound. Um, and it, it, his process for sound design is, is inc- you know, absolutely you know, uh, on a pedestal for me, but his process mm. for sound design is so exacting to make one tiny sound. But how, you know, he put it through multiple... Uh, multiple multiple plugins and racks through Ableton and for a, the tiny literally it's a half a second of sound mm. but that that was the half the second sound that just it sort of twists my insides so how how important that he'd done all of those different processes to it Definitely. so I'd aspire to be as amazing as he, as he is a, a lot of my stuff I feel is a little bit more lucky uh, and less he has clear control over all and understanding over all the parameters of each plugin he's using. Yeah, and maybe maybe he's got to that position through being lucky a few times and just trying things out. You know, I mean, I think he's a, he's a proper sound design expert, and I'd say that it's something that I certainly sort of dabble in. But um, you know, we're always on a kind of learning curve curve with it. 
So it sort of did what they but literally lots of plugins, some that are free and recommended, some that waves plugins. I recently invested in UAD plugins because I think I'd once use a, <laughs> I'd once use like the the actual physical thermionic culture vulture. Oh, I was like, nice. I love that sound. Yeah. So I've got to get it. Oh, there's a massive barrier to entry price with UAD, but finally kind of took the the leap. And, I, and also a lot of producer I, I knew had had recommended getting UAD as sort of a little bit transformational. And mm. I guess I'm getting a little bit closer to the trying to be, be really good at mixing before it goes off to mastering. So I, I'm getting to the point where some of those plugins might, might be more relevant for me. Definitely. Yeah, I think when you start to go from the lower level freebies to then sort of maybe up to native instruments, yeah. you can go beyond there, yeah, to like universal... Universal Audio Plugin Alliance, you know right, all, the, yeah. all the plugins on them, like yeah, you just you can really sculpt with an e with, I don't want to say an expensive EQ, but with a I don't know like a well made a professional software EQ even mm-hmm. you know it's the sculpture that you can create is, just seems to be much easier to do what you want than with an EQ and you do things and you, it's quite difficult to tell. Yeah. I think it is what I'm trying to say there really is that like it is worth spending money on decent plugins. You will sort of notice the difference, as well as just getting free bees and and messing yeah. them up as well. You know, like there's no, yeah. That I mean, you. I'm sure, huge artists and 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 Grammy winning tracks have had uh, free plugins and stupid stuff on them as well. Yeah, to- uh, to- totally. And I, and I've got to say, you know, my main interest is creatively how much it can warp or change that that's my primary passion it's almost like I have to force myself a little bit to do this the really careful sculpting part and the queuing it later on mm. because I know that that will help it convey better but you know the passion is make a weird sound yeah kind of thing. yeah, yeah. I, I've always loved the there's a sound in setting sun by the chemical brothers right and um it's just I, I think it's the darkest synth sound of all time right before the second drop in that track uh-huh. and it's just one of those probably very much like you have with the with the Seba Seba track which is just I love that sound I don't know idea how they make it um but yeah there's just something I always love I wait for that moment in the track and just yeah <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Yeah, you've and you've also talked about your sync music. Um, yeah, very recently you've had some sync music on the television, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So also in lockdown, a friend of mine actually uh, runs a, a sync music agency called Gargantuan Music, who uh, do do a lot of work with sort of major broadcasters here and abroad. So he was really encouraging me to put my hand to sync music. So I mm. eventually I went, yes, okay, I should accept this really good advice because <laughs> um, it is. Uh, and so I already, you know, listened to sort of tracks that he has on his library already to understand what he was asking for, because he's definitely writing to a brief. It's not writing the stuff that I write normally. Mm. And what it is is hybrid electronic with some orchestral sounds, I guess, orchestral percussion. It's dramatic trailer tension beds, effectively. And I had to, to learn quite quickly, you, you don't change key, you don't do anything apart from build the track until it, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of percussion right at the end, and there's a big crash, and then maybe a sub descending mm-hmm. at the end. So it's it's just a build. It's just a build that sits, and you are not there as music to to play a dominating melody. You're there to sit underneath 
some other dialogue usually. Right, I see. Which was which is great, and I I really enjoyed writing the tracks. So I wrote ten tracks in ten days, Federy. I just really smashed through it because I don't have to agonise over artistic choices. I just do stuff to the brief that I've been given. Yeah. And then after that, there was you know further couple of weeks where we might be doing rounds of amends, etc. And it's it's brilliant if someone just says, "Don't do that at that stage. Take that out. Put this in. Can you lift it a bit more here?" The ending's going to need to be bigger, and always the ending needs to be, you know, <laughs> big ending. Um, big gong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ginormous gong. So it's it's nice to be. To, just told just do that and then you just go and do it and you don't have to agonize about it it's just done and then it's accepted and after so some of them went through you know as much as five rounds of amends before before they were done some of them were, were almost immediately okay mm. and then that's that's gone out as an album and then yeah so literally nothing happened for a while and then a few weeks ago uh, i was on a trailer for holby city and then just got on a trailer for Casualty. So it's clearly hospital drama music that I've written. Excellent. Uh, calling the mugs out. I don't know how many more hospital dramas there are. We might run out quite, like, now. Um, but it, I'm sure there's more. I'm yeah. sure there's more. Um, that's really amazing. That's, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, congratulations on getting on getting to that level with it, you know. Um yeah, thank thank you very much. I mean, it, it it is actually meaningful to me. Again, you know, this, this, we're talking about like ten seconds of music, or and it, it it's so it's not exactly generic, but it it could be anybody's stuff, and it's sitting way under the dialogue. Mm. But it is um, it's sort of proof of being able to get to to a standard that then gets sent on to editors and is selected from a list. So. Yeah, good to have seen that engine work, as it were. Like Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I know. I think it's tremendous that you're able to, to to sort of fit in and slot in with that world and 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 do exactly what they want. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure lots of people have tried to get into sync and and like, and and found difficulties for some reason. I mean, I've been trying to not mention it, but do you yeah. remember Oxide and Neutrino remix the Casualty Casualty no, theme I didn't tune? Know that. <laughs> bound was it Bound for the Reload? Oh. It was like a really big underground. I guess it maybe wasn't underground a bit. It was promoted as being an underground garage hit. <laughs> And they sampled the casualty thing oh, too. Right. But it was like a garage hit. And that was Oxide yeah. and Neutrinos landing on the scene, basically. Oh, wow. Um, who were like a garage duo from the That's late nineties. Oh, <laughs> crossover. <laughs> I think it's Holby might City. Come full circle, <laughs> that's, maybe, that's yeah. my next yeah, next single. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> Great, and so yeah, um, f- yeah, w- this uh, podcast isn't going to go out by the time that you've done your uh, the all release breaks. Um, but yeah, you do have a third part that people can check out in your unique world series. Yeah. Yeah. What's the what's what, what's what's going to happen with breaks when that comes out? It's sort of in the same formula as spheres and terrain. The music's a bit. I mean, I think it's a bit different, but it's. Uh, I don't know. It's the this. It's the same different that I always do. <laughs> um, so equally, <laughs> equally as different as the other one. <laughs> I've. Imaginatively titled it breaks because it involves some drum breaks that mm-hmm. are that are loops. The interesting thing about the, the virtual stream for this is that we hope to have this audience interaction part so that you'll be able to make an event occur almost in real time by typing in a command either in Twitch, YouTube or potentially in Facebook too. And um, in a way where I am right now is rinse and repeat 
I mm. learn so much every time I do a release. So having done spheres and having done terrain, it's only two. It's very, I'm still very, very early into this process. Breaks was a track that I had actually been playing on live streams before. And I had a number of people just spontaneously and from different backgrounds say, you know, great, but what's, what's that track? Mm. Uh, so I thought, well, that's interesting if people are just naturally warming to that track. So Definitely. that was when I sort of took it out and pushed it further than it had been and tried to get the production and spent some time on the production to get it more to a, a sort of finished um, stage. So, uh, yeah, and it's, it's a bit weird, I suppose, because it involves, again, some pull-stretched vocals uh, at the, the front end, which are, are my vocals. Is, is that your secret weapon? Is this your... I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I actually feel for the next stuff I'm going to write, it's a little bit too uh, diffused a sound. So I think, in a way, I actually feel there's going to be a slight change for, for me from here. So I'm almost going back... All the things that I've worked up have been work workups of sketches that I made maybe a year to a year and a half ago. Whereas now almost I want to write a little differently. So now I'm almost going back to, to, to more soundscapey stuff that's influenced again, it doesn't sound anything like this, but sort of one oh tricks point never in Arca style portraits which are a bit more challenging and a bit more sound soundscaped. Mm. Um I'm thinking about moving a little bit more into that direction and potentially releasing a whole body of work, so like an EP or an album, rather than just a single. So almost maybe after breaks, there might be a little time of development, um, both on the music and on the creative presentation. And then potentially even as late as sort of September, kind of come back with something that's a bit more... Now I've done almost a lot of learning. Mm. So it sounds a bit scientific, but the last... I thought you were going to say come back in like four years. <laughs> four years. <laughs> oh, wow, that's not far. It's <laughs> yeah, fine. <exactly>. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Great. Okay. Well, just a couple more um, questions before we wrap up. Okay. That's okay. Just a couple of little ones. Um, yeah, what do you like doing aside from music, like away from music? Where, what's, where do you find serenity in life? Probably walking. So I am blessed in having uh, some uh, few friends who uh, enjoy going walking. And we have, over the last five or six years, we've walked a lot of paths around Britain. So mm. we start with the South Downs Way. Great. Um, uh, Good start. <laughs> yeah, actually. So it goes from Winchester to Eastbourne. Uh, and we ended up in the going into the sea in Eastbourne, which is nice. nice. Uh, so we, did, we then did the Essex Way, which starts uh, from Epping, um, and we're currently doing the Thames Path, um, which will take years, uh, a few years, because we, we meet up once every six months just for three days, and we do kind of three days of, of walking together Brilliant. and staying in random B&Bs, which is always fun. Yeah. So all, all being well, we should be able to kind of start that again in late May, depending on... Where, where things are um, but it's lovely we it just just fantastic break for all of us from whatever else we're doing um, that's amazing and I'm remembering back to an interview I did with Phil Nelson who works at BIM and he was a manager for um, oh the Long Pigs and oh god a much bigger band than that oh no I've forgotten the name anyway I spoke to Phil Nelson and he said the same thing he said he's running out of walks in Britain now oh really <laughs> yeah he's wow. walked everywhere he's like it's really hard for me 
for him to find a place to walk. But yeah, it's it's nice to do that, isn't it? It's um nice to see the countryside and escape. Yeah, uh, t- totally. And it's just it's just completely different from whatever else we do during our day to day. Yeah. Cool. And finally, do you have any um, philosophy that you appro- that you approach life with, profound or not? Um, so this is making me think of Spinal Tap <laughs> I don't, have you seen Spinal Tap of course ever? I have yeah. <laughs> yeah, just go, sex, drugs and rock and roll but <laughs> if I've got the sex and the drugs I could do that rock and roll or something like that I can't remember uh, no not really no, no I mean it, it, philosophy I, I think I, I said earlier I think I just got to the point in life where my fear of doing things was, my fear of not doing things was greater than my fear of doing things. Mm. And then the balance tips. Um, so I think that's where I am. Awesome. <laughs> well, you are a tremendously talented producer. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to music and I would totally recommend everyone listening to, uh, to check it out and all your new material. Um, yeah, thanks very much for speaking to me today. It's been really good fun. Thanks very much.
Oh, it was so nice to speak to Helena. Um, that was a that was a day out for me. That was the first one I've done in person for a very long time. So um, it was fantastic to meet Helena and talk about her career. And I think her story is fantastic, really motivating and inspiring to people who want to make music and have never done it. It shows you that you can do it and you can make it. And there are talented people out there who don't yet know it. Okay, on the show next time, we've got an absolute legend of the techno scene. Uh, all I'm going to say is, we got the Baron of Techno. If you know who that is, you know who we're going to be speaking to. If you don't, you're going to have a great time. He's one of the, my all-time heroes. As always, an amazing guy. Thank you very much for listening once again. I really appreciate all the support. I really appreciate all the comments. Um, if you can donate, it's greatly appreciated. If you don't, that's fine as well. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Midiera, and I'll see you again soon. Thank you.